Thanks again for those who've led us in our worship and our praise tonight. And I'm going to continue in Romans, just ask you, we're going to read from Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 1. So Romans chapter 9 from verse 1. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul where he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the Lord, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not, though, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not therefore, sorry, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to, wrath, to, to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us 
whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, and unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I think we should have left a couple of weeks ago before that passage. But anyway, let's just pray together. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your goodness and mercy. We want to thank you for just the teaching you provide in your word that touches every part, every aspect of life and our salvation. So speak to us tonight through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for me, it's a, a fascinating thing to study, to look at, at the life of the nation of Israel after they returned to their own land post the Second World War. I think from it we can gain amazing and yet at the same time frightening insights into human nature as we see how Israel, who were themselves for centuries a dispossessed people and who suffered terrible persecution with this culminating in the atrocities of the Second World War, and as we see how they now in turn treat the Palestinians. For we have seen again and again that if they feel threatened, that Israel will go in hard, and that they are capable at times of an almost unbelievable level of callousness and brutality. Now, doesn't this reveal really just how self-absorbed, how, how self-centered we are? as human beings. Now, of course, we have to be careful, I know that, of making judgments of others when we don't stand in their shoes. And certainly Israel uh, are, are surrounded by some very fierce enemies. But still, sometimes their actions seem to be so devoid of any kind of empathy, any kind of compassion for those who are suffering as a result of their actions, as to be thinking of their past truly astounding. And this is allowed to go on. Even more than that, Israel is funded, protected, and armed by other nations to an incredible degree to enable this. And I sometimes find myself asking, 
the question, why? Now, a lot of this, I know, is, is down to the world's guilt at what the Jewish people did suffer during the last war. But, you know, also, and particularly in the United States, there seems to be something of a, a combination, a coalition of Jewish and evangelical Christian influence in the corridors of power. Now, our particular concern, I think, has to be the evangelical Christians who have such a high view of Israel and of their place in God's purposes, and because of that, who will do almost anything to protect Israel and safeguard their interests. But I want to say, I see Israel as having a part to play in God's future purposes. I don't think God is finished with Israel. However, I also believe that we should leave God to fulfill prophecy and to protect and deal with Israel as He sees fit. But as Christians, as God's people, I do believe that our responsibility is to stand for righteousness and justice for all peoples. But the bigger question that, that concerns us tonight is how is it that Israel find themselves in the place they're at today, where they've largely you know, become a secular nation, they've rejected their Messiah, they've become a people who bear little resemblance to that Old Testament people of God. Yes, and, and what is their future? And how does this future relate to? How does it fit in with, with our future as God's people now? Now, these are the, the kind of questions that, that Paul looks at in Romans 9 to 11. As in these chapters, he looks at Israel's past, present, and future. With the focus in the chapter we're looking at here, Romans 9, be more on the past moving into the present. And if you want the future, you'll have to ask me back for pulpit supply sometime in the future. So there you are. So why is Israel in the place they're in? How could this happen? This is a question that, that moves Paul to reveal here his own broken heart. As in the opening verses of this chapter, verse 1 to 5, he reviews the, the privilege and, and blessings that have been poured out upon Israel, and yet that have all come to nothing. He outlines eight different ways that God has blessed Israel, all designed to lead them and protect them and guide them while they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And yet, when he came, they rejected him. They turned their back on him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They conspired to have him crucified. Paul's heart then breaks as he sees this people who he loves, his nation, his people, even his own family, going to their doom. Indeed, such is Paul's heartbreak that he says that for the sake of his people, verse 3, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Now, the, the way that this is actually expressed in, in the original, the underlying idea is that, that Paul wishes that this could be so, but he knows that it is impossible. He knows because he's just expressed his conviction in Romans 8, 39, 
that nothing can ever separate God's people from God's love in Christ. That once we are Christ's, we are Christ's forever. But what a clear expression this is. That the life and the love of Jesus Christ are at work in Paul's heart and life. That as Christ gave himself for the sake of mankind, so Paul is willing to give himself for the sake of his people. James Denny, a great Scottish preacher, he calls this a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. For he is prepared to die in their place. But having revealed his own broken heart, Paul then goes on on to answer the question as to why Israel is in this place, how this could happen, by answering four different questions that this raises. The first is, is God unfaithful? Verse 6 to 13. Has God promised something in his word that he has then failed to deliver. For he promised to bless Israel. He'd entered into covenant with Israel. Has he then let them down? And Paul's answer is a clear no. And he he makes it clear that the problem here is a failure to understand who Israel truly is. That is that in the Bible, there has always been, in a sense, two Israels. One Israel, physically, one, one physically descended from Israel, that is from Jacob, but the other are those who are his spiritual descendants, the true Israel. Now, Paul himself has already made this same distinction in Romans 2, from verse 28 on, between those who are Jews outwardly, whose circumcision was in the body, And those who are Jews inwardly, who receive a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. True Jews, the true Israel. And he then goes on to to illustrate this through Abraham's family and and Isaac's family. And trace this then right back. He goes right back and traces it to his roots. For you see, Abraham physically had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. But only Isaac was reckoned as his spiritual descendant. Only Isaac was the inheritor of God's God's promise. It's in the second example, though, that of Isaac's own family, that the roots of this true Israel are, are really revealed there. For you see, his children are twins. We know the story, but only one of them, only Jacob, is to be the inheritor of God's promises. It's through him and through him alone that the line of the true Israel, of the spiritual Israel, is to be continued. Now what this tells us is that God's promises have not failed, but rather that they are fulfilled in for the true Israel, the Israel within Israel. But what this also makes, I believe, crystal clear is that the roots of this lie in God's choice, in God's election. And that this choice of God is not about one being good or one being bad, because we're told here that this decision was made before they were born. 
Nor is this decision based on, on God's knowledge of the way that they would later on live their lives. For as verse 12 states, this choice is not about works. It isn't about their life or behavior, but it's by him who calls. No, this is all about God's choice. It's about God choosing to call one rather than call the other. And let me here just quote David Seacom. He says that it is a fundamental biblical principle that the basis of God's election is in himself, not in those who are chosen. He makes us according to what he has predestined us to be. He does not predestine us according to what he foresees we will make ourselves. In fact, it's probably necessary here to, to explain a, a, a sentence we find which in English really expresses God's choice, I think almost brutally there in verse 13, just as it is written, quoting Malachi 1, 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Brutal. <clears throat> but actually, it isn't as brutal as it seems. Because this was a, a Jewish form of speech, a, a speech idiom, almost a, a kind of Jewish slang where they used an extreme for preference. And so you see Jesus in, in Luke twelve forty six, he says there that we cannot be his disciple unless we hate our family. But then in, in Matthew ten thirty seven. The way that it's put there is that we are forbidden to love our family more than him. So we're not literally called to hate our family. Rather, what this is about is we are called to love God more. We're called to choose God, to prefer God. Similarly, God does not literally hate Esau. God does not literally hate one group of humanity. No, God loves all mankind, but God does make a choice. He does prefer one to the other. So the answer to that first question, is God unfaithful? Has he failed to fulfill the promises that he made to Israel? Is a definite and resounding no. He has and continue to fulfill his promises to the true Israel, to the spiritual Israel, to the Israel that he's chosen, he's preferred, he's elected. But all this talk of, of choice and election really then goes on to raise another question for Paul that he wants to answer. Is God unjust? Verses 14 to 80. Yes, is it not a breach of basic justice that God should choose some for salvation and yet at the same time choose to pass others by? And Paul's answer again is an emphatic no. And again, he uses biblical examples to illustrate his point and traces it back this time to, to its roots in God's character. So, first of all, Paul quotes God's words to Moses from Exodus 33, 19. I will have mercy on those I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, now what Paul is getting at here, the, the point that Paul is making, is that it's far from the fact that some are not saved being unjust. Rather, the fact that any are saved at all is an act of God's mercy. For we did not and never can deserve salvation. Our choice to sin, our choice to rebel against God, our choice to refuse to walk God's ways, to seek His face, to do His will, leaves us separate from a holy, sinless, morally perfect God. And it leaves us facing and deserving nothing but His wrath and judgment. So you see, the only people who get what they don't deserve are those who are given the gift of salvation in Christ. Those who are not saved, that's not unjust. Rather to the contrary, that is justice. That's justice. That is mankind receiving what mankind deserves. And then Paul clarifies this further by looking at the example of Pharaoh, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, do you see what that's saying? It's saying that Paul raised up that, sorry, that God raised up that particular Pharaoh at that particular point in history, the time of the Exodus, knowing that his treacherous, obstinate personality would lead to the Exodus, to that, that touchstone, that defining moment in the life of the people of God. That time that they would always look back to, that time in the Exodus that would always stand to them as a monument of the faithfulness and love and sovereign power of their God. But it says here more than God raised this Pharaoh up. It also says, verse 18, that God hardened his heart. Is God then unjust? And that not only does he choose to show mercy to some and not to others, but in addition, he actually hardens the heart of some against him. Well, if you look at the passages in Exodus that tell the story of Pharaoh, then you'll notice if you look that in some passages it talks of Pharaoh hardening his heart. In others, it talks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I believe that the comments that are made by Leon Morris here give us clear understanding of this when he says, that neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. You see, it's not that God hardens against himself people who actually are open to him. No, rather, it's that God in his judgment confirms the judgment of those who have already chosen to harden themselves against him. Is it unjust then that people who have sinned, people who have turned from God, the people who have despised and rejected God, is it unjust 
that people who have made that choice and have chosen to harden their heart against God, is it unjust that they find that that choice has been confirmed by God and that they're facing his judgment? Now, with Paul, I would have to say no. And I repeat what I said earlier. The only people who get what they don't deserve are those who are given the gift of salvation in Christ. And all of this, we said it traces by, and it does. It's really rooted in the character of God. It's an inevitable outworking of who God is. For God is a God of justice, so there has to be judgment on sin, but God is also a God of love, and so He has to provide a way for mankind to be saved, which He did gloriously in Christ. God does not judge anyone who does not deserve to be judged as a result of their own choice and their own actions. The fact that He chooses to save some, that is grace. That is undeserved love. That is unthinkable, unimaginable mercy. Paul then moves on as he continues to consider the, peop- the, the position Israel now are in. He proceeds to another question that he seeks to answer. Is God then unfair? Is God unfair? That's the, the question that Paul asks in, in, verses nine, in verse 19 and goes then on to answer in verse 20 to 23. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists His will? You got it saying there? Is it fair then for God to hold us accountable when ultimately it is him who makes all the decisions. Now to this question, Paul makes three responses. The first is simply a statement of God's sovereignty. The fact that God has the right of a potter over his clay. Now, now, what's said here is, is really just designed to emphasize the gulf that there is, that exists between us as human beings, as God's creation, and our Creator, God. And it would seem that likely that what Paul has in mind here as he, as he frames this question in this way, what he's got in his mind are two texts in Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 29, verse 16, where God there, he issues the challenge to his people. You turn things upside down, he says. That is, in refusing to allow God to be God, they attempt to reverse roles as if the potter had become the pot and the pot the potter. And you get the point, what's being said. That is, what right have we got as finite, sinful human beings to argue the point with an infinite, all-wise creator? The second text is Isaiah 45, verse 9 where Isaiah pronounces there a woe to him who is only an ordinary earthen vessel and yet challenges the potter to explain what he's making. Now here, I think we've got to establish a clear biblical distinction that God has no problems 
with a believer asking sincere questions when they're perplexed. God's got no problems with that. As human beings, we're made in God's image, and even though that image has been distorted by our fall into sin, yet still as God's image bearers, we are spiritual beings who are encouraged to ask questions, to explore God's revelation, to communicate with God, to seek to think His thoughts after Him. So, so Paul then, in using the image here of God as the potter, man as the clay, he's not trying to silence in any way the genuine questioning believer. Rather, who Paul has in his sights is the rebel who will not let God be God. It's that person who, when faced with our inevitable lack of understanding of all of God's ways, that person who will not allow that element of mystery as we seek to live in relationship with an infinite God. The person who just refuses to say and to acknowledge, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know you. And because I know you, I will trust you. I will accept what your word says. And instead, who despite what God's word states, instead who says, Lord, I just refuse to accept this. I refuse to believe that this can be your way, despite what your word says. It's this person who here God, uh, Paul seeks to silence by the statement of God's sovereignty. His next response to the question of, is God unfair in his dealings with Israel, relates to the fact that actually this is a revelation of God's glory. Verse 22 and 23. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? Both like us, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, those who are in Christ, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Now, it's, it's kind of complicated, but when you pair all this down, I believe what Paul is saying is that God in his dealings with Israel, in fact, God in his dealings with all men, that as he now holds back at this time his judgment with great patience and shows mercy, that reveals his glory. But then, in the last days, as God's mercy then will be seen against the backdrop of his judgment and wrath against sin and all his ugliness, then that will make his glory stand out even more. That's why God deals with Israel and does as he does. Because ultimately, in the end, this will make his glory most wonderfully known. Paul's third response to this question of whether God is unfair in his dealings with Israel is to make it clear that all of this is foretold in Scripture. God's not doing something he didn't say that he would do. Rather, this is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 24 to to 29, the passages that he focuses on in these verses are are from Hosea chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 10. 
Now, what we have to grasp in order to, to get a hold of, of what Paul's actually saying is, and let me quote here from John Stott, that according to the New Testament, Old Testament prophecies often have a threefold fulfillment. The first is immediate and literal in the history of Israel. The second, intermediate and spiritual in Christ and his church. And the third, ultimate and eternal in God's final consummated kingdom. So you see, both of these prophecies, all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Israel's history. For example, the first prophecy from Hosea, that prophecy relates to the names that were given to Hosea's children, born of his adulterous wife. You know, not my people, not loved. And that was a symbol of God's judgment on a northern kingdom of Israel that came to pass. But that situation of rejection was later, in God's mercy, reversed. And that's the text, you see, that Paul quotes here. With the the point that he's making being that this prophecy actually foretold the inclusion of believing Gentiles, of those who put their faith in Christ, their inclusion into the true Israel. And that this, Paul's saying, has always been God's plan. And then the Isaiah passages. These tell us that only a minority of the physical, historic Israel will be included in the true spiritual Israel, as was the case here with Sodom and Gomorrah, just as it was with them. Only a relative handful will escape the judgment of God. So see what it says in verse 7. It says, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, that is the physical Israel, only the remnant, the true Israel, will be saved. So again, just to repeat and summarize Paul's answer to the question, is God unfair when he holds us accountable, when it's actually him who makes all the decisions? Paul's answer is first, to make clear that this action is a statement of God's sovereignty. That it is for God to act as, God's, as God wills. And certainly no one is punished undeservedly. It's only those who receive the gift of grace in Christ who get what they don't deserve. Then he goes on to state that this is a revelation of God's glory, that in acting as he does here, God highlights his glory. And finally, that all of this was foretold in prophecy. That God had always said from the beginning that there would be a remnant called out from Israel and called out from humanity, from the Gentiles, to be a part of the true Israel of God. The final question that Paul considers as he he looks and explores this bigger question of, why and how could Israel ever find themselves in this place? Is, is God consistent? Is God consistent? That is, in dealing with Israel in this way, is God acting in a consistent way? 
And the answer Paul gives is yes. Yes, why? Why? Because God's way has always been the way of righteousness by faith. Israel, though, they chose to pursue righteousness with God by works. And it was this that led to their majority being rejected by God, while it was the Gentiles who respond to the gospel, to the offer of righteousness through faith in Christ. It's they, we, as we put our trust in Him who found salvation. See what it says, verse 30 to 33. What shall we then say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness by law, has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I lay in Zion a rock, a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But before we finish, I want to just bring all that I've said right home tonight by asking you the question. What's your situation regarding God and Christ and Christian faith? Right here and right now. Because all that we've said about God's election, God's choice of men and women, about His call, about the way that this has always been, the way of faith. All of this boils down to this. Not about you debating and analyzing whether or not you're one of the chosen, one of the elect, not that. But it boils down to this. As you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you hear that God loved you so much that even in your sin, even when you'd rebelled against Him, even when your back was turned to Him, that He came to this earth in Jesus Christ and died in your place on the cross. That He gave His perfect life in order to save you, to make it possible for you to know Him, to know life now and for all eternity. When you hear that message, how do you respond to that within? Does it touch your heart? Does it touch your heart? I want to say, if so, then God is calling you. And if you haven't done anything about that before, if you've never responded to that message before, I say to you, do it now. Become part of God's Israel, of His true people. Become part of that, His way, by faith. Do that now. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank You for the fact that Your purposes were laid out in Your Word. They're there to be seen from beginning to end. You've done exactly what you always intended to do in Christ. And you're at work in our world right now, bringing things 
to the conclusion, bringing things to that end. When Jesus will return, when every knee will bow to Him, when all men, all women, all humanity will be judged on the basis of how have they responded to the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we tonight, by faith, make sure that we are part of your true people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.